Well, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'm just thankful for the few weeks that we've had as a family to both go on um, vacation and also to um, attend the General Assembly. And I typically will come with a report of the General Assembly and we'll spend some time in prayer um, about the things that we discussed there, but we'll do that next week. I'll give you an update on that. It was an encouraging time. Um, we had, uh, I think, uh, one of the most unified um, general assemblies that I've been a part of, uh, and so it was, it was an encouraging time, and I, I heard many people say something similar to that. So, uh, so I'll have a good report for you to, to share next week. Um, but I'm thankful for Ray and for Matt and for those who came and, and preached the word while we were away, um, Sean Henderson and, and Tim McCracken. Um, it's always a bit, it's a challenge because you're away and you, you want to be here um, and and you come back and you, you realize you, they could kind of do this without you. So it's a little bit of a bittersweet moment to come back and to say, you know, this is really not my church, this is the Lord's church um, and, and it's a good thing. Um, but I am grateful to be back with you. I, we, I love uh, what God has called me to. And um, I love preaching his word. And so as we look to Judges chapter 2, this is um, a passage, a, a chapter that I've been reflecting upon for a while. And it's easy to sort of look at Judges in these stories that we read about. And we're still really in the introductory section of, of the book. But to look at them as being just very distant from us. And, and not applying to us uh, directly. And yet I want to begin with a challenge for you to consider, maybe in your own life, have you ever felt so trapped in a cycle of sin that you questioned your salvation? Uh, I think that's where we want to go with this passage, right? to take this very personal and one of my favorite quotes, in fact, it's a quote that you may have heard if you've been with us um, for some time. It was a quote I, I used in my very first, um, in our very first preview service back in 2014. So I'm sure you don't have it memorized, but it's, an, an, it's a powerful quote that speaks to this idea uh, of our own tendency. Uh, it's by Octavius Winslow. It's from his book, um, personal declension. That's the shorter phrase. He's a Puritan, so he has a much longer title that you can look up. It's free online. You can, you can find it. But Octavius Winslow writes this. This is the very first paragraph of the book. If there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. Truly, there is in this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. Right, that after all of the graces 
and mercies God has poured out upon us, there still remains within us a tendency to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. The the political decline of Israel that we looked at last time, several weeks ago from chapter 1, finds its climax here in the first five verses of chapter 2 as the angel of the Lord gives an assessment. Right? He really explains to them why they experienced this decline. And his argument is that they have been unfaithful to the covenant. But as we analyze their failure in this chapter, I strongly encourage you to be mindful of your own tendencies and your own dependence upon Christ alone for your salvation and for your perseverance. Judges was probably written during the monarchy, during uh, the reign of kings in Israel, and it was meant as an illustration for them, a, a, a challenge to them to return to the Lord, right? Because now that they had a king, as we will get to the end of Judges, or the argument is that they needed a king. Right? They were they were chaotic. There was there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and. And then they get a king, and what do we find? Most of the kings are just as corrupt as this nation of Israel during the time of the judges. It did not improve their situation. And so it was a call to repentance, to seek the Lord's help. And that is the cycle of judges that we'll find time and time again, chapter after chapter. Israel cries out in despair, and God responds because he is covenantally faithful. He keeps his covenant promises. So maybe the question that this, this chapter is beginning to approach and to answer is, when and how will the cycle of idolatry end? When will the cycle of their constant turning away, departing from God, following after the gods of their neighbors, the Canaanites, when and how will that cycle of idolatry end? And of course, as you personalize that to yourself, when will that cycle of of sin end in your life? So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we open your word and once again depend upon you to speak. And we need a fresh work of your spirit in our own hearts. to Bring us to a place where we are ready to receive from you. To be challenged to be brought to our knees in conviction of our sin and then to once again hear the call of Christ to be reminded of the mercy and grace we've received because of his finished work on the cross. So Lord, may this gospel become more true in our hearts as we respond to your word here from Judges chapter 2. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So it'll be a bit of a lengthier reading of, of Scripture, but we'll read from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 6. Just read along with me. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, 
And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the, of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the 
testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll see this entire section broken down into really two passages or two sections. The first will be the the root of Israel's problem, which is verses 1 through 13. And then we'll see the response to Israel's problem. So the root of Israel's problem and then the response to Israel's problem will be how we'll close this out. The first thing that's pointed out here. In, in this episode where the angel of the Lord visits Israel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is the lack of repentance. But we've got to begin by really understanding who the angel of the Lord is. Who is this angel that has come? He appears several times throughout the Old Testament. And... And in those passages, we see him identified with the Lord. And in fact, when he appears to Moses and Joshua, they're told to remove their sandals from their feet, that they're standing on holy ground. Right? So he, he so identifies with the Lord that in his presence, in, the, in this angel's presence, there's holiness. And so the, Moses and Joshua remove their sandals in order to remain there. We, we also see in, in Exodus chapter 23, verses uh, 20 through 22, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. The name of the Lord is in this angel. There's an identification with this angel of the Lord and, uh, and God. He says, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Okay, so we can look at uh, several other passages where, where the, the angel seems to be identified with God himself. And yet, in, in many of those same passages, there's a distinguishing from the Lord. Right? It's almost like he's a, a prophet coming to speak on behalf of the Lord. So how do, how do we make sense of who this angel is? Well, I think in all likelihood this is a theophany. It's a picture of the second person of the Trinity coming in, in, in a visible manifestation. Right? He's a prophet mediator like Moses. Um, and, and Peter makes this same connection between that prophet who, was, who Moses prophesied would come, a prophet like himself, with Jesus. And in Acts chapter 3, he quotes Moses saying, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, these days where Jesus has now come and appeared and, and fulfilled 
the covenant promises. So he's identified with the Lord and he's distinguished from the Lord. What, what doctrine do we associate that kind of language with? It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? This angel of the Lord has come and he's appeared to Israel and if, and if we're right, this is the very Lord himself giving them a message. And what is his message? It's very similar to what the prophets say. It's a, a covenant lawsuit. It's a declaration of, of judgment. But it begins with a reminder that God has been faithful. We have verse 1. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And so he begins by reminding Israel that he has been faithful. That he is the one who brought them out of Egypt, brought them into this land, this promised land. He has given it over to them. So why aren't they victorious? Why don't they have full possession of the land? Well, verse 2, he tells them, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? It's because of their disobedience. They have been covenant breakers. He has been faithful. They have been faithless. And so the result is verse 3. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. And so they begin to to associate with them, to live among them. They begin to worship with them and like them. They begin to practice the same abominable practices. But what's the result? As, as the angel of the Lord appears to them and gives them this message of judgment, the result of the people is weeping. Look, look at verse 4. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And not only did they weep, but they made sacrifices. They sacrificed there to the Lord, verse 5. So the question is, what is the extent of this seeming picture of repentance from the people of Israel? And if this is true repentance, then it must go deeper than external tears. Or even external sacrifices. Right? There's, a, there's a hint here of, of repentance. And then as you keep reading, you see that it was a very short-lived repentance at best. That they quickly fall away. And so in my opinion, even this weeping and this sacrifice, this, these sacrifices that were offered were done in a very superficial and shallow way. So that's the first uh, explanation of their problem, of Israel's problem. The root of their problem is a, a lack of repentance. In verses 6 through 10, we see another root of their problem is a lack of knowledge. Right, where, once again, there's a hard break here. Really, chapter 2, 1 through 5 belongs to the first introduction. It's the conclusion to that first introduction to the book. And now we begin... Uh, once again with Joshua's death and a different uh, looking at their decline from a different picture. So chapter one looked at their political decline. Now we're looking at their religious decline. And it begins with a lack of knowledge that there was a generation, the generation after Joshua that did not know 
the Lord. Now, there's a distinction here because it doesn't say that they didn't know about the Lord. They had some knowledge of the Lord. They had been taught some things about the events that have happened, but they didn't know the Lord experientially. And you see the same language in chapter 3 that we read where it says they didn't know war. Of course, they knew about war. They knew that wars took place and wars happened, but they didn't know war themselves because they hadn't experienced it. It was the generation prior to them that had been warriors, that had been fighters. And so they had not experienced God, is what this is now saying. They didn't know God. They didn't know him in an experiential way. They only knew about him. It didn't go beyond their minds. And it didn't go into their hearts. They lacked an experiential knowledge of God. And so how do you address that as a people? How do you address that problem? Well, it really does have to begin with catechism, with a reminder, with an intellectual exercise. It has to start there. It just can't end there. Right? The the catechism must be lived out within our homes. And maybe you're not familiar with that language, catechism, right? This is simply the idea of of teaching our children, of passing on the doctrine that we've been taught by God's word in, in a systematic way so that they would have categories and a foundation of knowledge so that when they open God's word, they can, they come to it with understanding. And it's an important aspect of our relationship with God that we would take the time to train up our children and, and many of us, the, the adults in here, I would imagine, myself included, grew up in homes where that didn't happen. Right? Where, where we went to church on Sundays, we learned a little bit about God, but then we went home and TV was on and, you know, the sport, sports clothes came out and whatever it is that we wanted to do took over. And our parents went to work, we went to school, we came home and that cycle repeated itself once again the next week. But there was no experiential knowledge of God beyond that moment in in worship, maybe. And so I think the the first application I want to encourage you with here is that we can certainly expect the same results today that happened for Israel here. Right, where... Where they can know, our, our family, our, our, our children can know something about God and not know God. Because they don't see it being lived out day in and day out. Right? They don't see, they, they might even know something of the catechism, but they don't see its application in their lives. And that's why discussing it, not just memorizing the catechism, but, but learning about what it means on a day-to-day level. And the fact of the matter is, um, all children are being catechized. They're all learning some doctrine. Whether you're teaching it to them or someone else is teaching them a doctrine. They're learning it from the shows they watch, from the teachers they sit under. They're being catechized. And so if you're not doing it at home, then you're allowing someone else to train them up. And it's our responsibility as a church to assist the parents in the raising up of the covenant children, right? We, we actually take that vow when we, when we have a baptism here. 
And as we, we all as a church say, we commit to raising up that child alongside their parents, to, to providing them the resources they need. And so if you have any questions about that or any desire to participate in that, that's one of the things I would encourage you to do is, is know the catechism yourself so that you can then pass it on to others. So we can expect the same results if we aren't any different in our own practice. So there's a lack of knowledge. There's, first of all, a lack of repentance. Then there's a lack of knowledge. And then thirdly, there's a presence of idolatry. There's a positive presence of a departure from God, a turning away from God, a turning towards other gods. And the language it uses here, and we'll find it throughout the book of Judges, is they did what was evil. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase seems to be tied directly to apostasy or to idolatry. Turning away to other gods. They no longer served and worshipped God. They now served and worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth. Fertility gods. These are uh, Baal is the storm god, the god of weather. Right? He's the one responsible for allowing your crops to grow. In combination with Ashtaroth, the goddess of love and fertility and even war. These are divine beings who would contribute to the fertility of their people, right? To provide for their growth within their families, growth in their crops, in their flocks, their herds, right? They were dependent upon these gods to provide for them. And in fact, the way they worshipped them was by convincing them to be fertile themselves so that, that they could then pass on that blessing to the people. So they had what's called sacred prostitution. That's how they worshipped God. They showed, they tried to instigate Baal and Asheroth to have divine intercourse that would result in fruit for the people. And it's hard to even talk about without saying this is, this is crazy. Right? This is insane. And yet the people were engaged in it. The people who had been brought out from Egypt, brought out of slavery, brought into the promised land, fall into that same kind of idolatry and sin. To the point that they're even sacrificing their children to these gods. We see that in in Psalm 106. Verse 34, they did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Almost the same language that we found there in Judges chapter 2. They played the whore. And these are the details of this disastrous arrangement between Israel and the false gods of the Canaanites. And it will be a characteristic we find throughout the entire period of Judges. And they were seeking material prosperity. 
in whatever form they could find it. And so they even fall into this fertility cult, this fertility religion. And we think, how could they do that? But but if we're honest with ourselves, we often respond to our own sin with a very superficial repentance. A very shallow and short-lived repentance. One commentator says this, The Lord is not deceived by external expressions of repentance. He looks for the rent heart, not the rent garments. Just an external and outward form of religion and repentance is not sufficient. Right? And yet... and yet, if I'm looking at myself, I want to be the one who conquers my sin. I look at my own sin and I say, I want, to, I want to have victory over that. And so the religious response to moral failure is to develop a strategy, right, to find a book to read, to have a plan, to punish myself with guilt and shame. In other words, we go through a season of of weeping without knowledge. And it provides a temporary relief, and yet it never addresses the root problem. And so sin just keeps coming right back up to the surface. And once again, we fall. So how did the Lord respond to this shallow repentance? We see in verses 14... Chapter 3, verse 6, and we'll try to go through this a little faster. But in verse 14 and 15, the Lord becomes angry. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So he brings them to a place of distress by allowing them to be plundered by their neighbors. In response to their unfaithfulness, God allows Israel's neighbors to plunder them. And this was promised. It was sworn that it would happen should they do what they did. And so in his anger, he delivers them over. And yet in his compassion, we read that he saves them out of their distress. And then the Lord, verse 16, raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So wherever there is a a true love, there is also jealousy. If God is truly loving of his people, he cannot stand idly by and watch them whoring after other gods. You can apply it to marriage the same way. If, if a husband can stand by and watch his wife falling in love with other men and not care, that's not love. Right? If, if there's going to be a genuine love, it's going to show itself in a jealous anger for anything that opposes that covenant love. And so we can understand God's anger, his response here to the people who who have been whoring after other gods. The language is is strong. It's not meant to be pleasant and gentle 
It's meant to catch us off guard, to read that and to say, ooh, can I say that from the pulpit? It's meant to catch us off guard. They were whoring after other gods. You see that language in Hosea 1 through 3 in a very vivid illustration where Hosea is told to marry a prostitute and to even have kids with her who then, and then to even raise kids that she has with other men. The picture is, is devastating and yet God says, that's my relationship with my people. Your unfaithfulness to me, this is, that's what it's a picture of. It's ugly. And so the real mystery here is why, why God would ever show compassion upon them. The mystery is why, why, is, why is this Bible, why is there anything beyond judges? Why didn't he just cut them off at that point and end it? Why do we have God's compassion continuing to be poured out upon his people? Israel's fall was complete. They were politically pluralistic. They, had, they intermarry socially. Um, and they're religiously polytheistic. They had many gods. They've abandoned everything they've known prior to this point. Everything they've been taught. And so the Lord's anger was just, and we reminded again in chapter 2, verse 19, or verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Why were these nations left? It was left to test this new generation. It was a test, verse 22, to test them to see whether they would be obedient in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way the Lord, has their, uh, the Lord as their fathers did or not. And again, in chapter 3, verse 1, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. And then again in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. There's also another component there in verse 2. He left them to give them an opportunity to experience, to know war. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. So this is a test to see if they would be faithful in obedience and to see if they would be victorious in war. To see if they would trust in God, both politically and religiously, morally. Would they trust in him? And we see in both categories they were utter failures. Again, why weren't they consumed? Why weren't they swallowed up at this point? It's only because of the steadfast love of the Lord. And no God is like our God. Right? If sacred prostitution is what coerced Baal and Ashtaroth to give blessings to their people, we have a God who responds to repentance and faith, who is moved with compassion by the distress of his people.
Israel thought that the power of their enemies was greater, both politically and spiritually, than the power of God. And so they submitted themselves to Baal and Ashtaroth. And, and yet we do see, as Ian Proven points out, the old gods are still with us. They've simply changed their clothes. We're still tempted by the same things. Success. Fertility. right? Greater growth in our home, in our income, in our careers. We, we want success. And we often succumb to temptation because we think we're, we're powerless against it. And there is a sense in which sin is powerful. Dale Ralph Davis says sin is not, some, is not simply an action you do or fail to do. It is that, but it's not simply that. That you can choose to do or not to do. Sin is a power that holds you in its grip. Right? And there's small compromises that we make that are the very beginning of a downward spiral that, it, that we see depicted here in Judges. But if we look back over our own lives, we, de- we detect that same pattern. Right? Small compromises that lead to gigantic failures. And yet, inexplicably, God rescues Israel time and time again. God meets repeated failure with repeated rescue. And so what I would say is that the, the scariest place for anyone to be is to be indifferent. All right, the great danger expressed in this chapter is not merely indifference toward their own sin, but especially towards the Lord's punishment of sin. But the, the apostate responds to punishment with further indulgence. Whereas the believer is eager to repent, eager to respond in repentance. And so here's the point I want to leave you with and encourage you with. When the punishment for sin is met with indifference, our only hope is in a Savior who absorbs the punishment in our place. When the punishment for sin is met with indifference, our only hope is in a Savior who absorbs the punishment in our place. Apart from the gospel, the pattern of sin and the rebellion will continue to escalate. You remove the gospel from the picture and that principle that Octavius Winslow speaks about will manifest itself into a secret departure from God. Maybe even an outward departure from God. So apart from the gospel, the pattern of sin and rebellion escalates. Only the gospel can transform an indifferent heart and break the cycle of idolatry. And so the question becomes, do we believe the gospel? Do we trust the gospel? Do we rest in the covenant promises of our Lord? Because the the root of Israel's problem was a lack of repentance and a lack of knowledge which manifested itself in idolatry. And the reaction to Israel's problem was the Lord's anger and compassion. And we see his anger is kindled by Israel's idolatry and his compassion is initiated by their distress and their groaning. But the key here is is actually chapter 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, 
the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. So what would have been the solution for Israel would have been a judge that conquered death. That's what they needed. They needed a judge who could be with them for all time, who would never leave them nor forsake them. And so rather than fabricating a false repentance that's filled with all these outward requirements, we must learn to trust in the finished work of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Right, the only judge who was sent as the great rescuer to defeat sin and death in our place. That's our only hope. And let's thank him for accomplishing that work for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you.